April showers bring Mayflowers, but what do Mayflowers bring? A special offer from the DSR Network. For the month of May, become a member and receive 20% off a monthly or annual membership. Members receive an ad-free listening experience, exclusive bonus content, our evening members-only newsletter, and an invitation to continue the conversation via our members-only Slack community. This offer won't last, so act now. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code MAYFLOWERS, one word, to receive your discount. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code MAYFLOWERS. Thank you for your support. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I am your host, as usual, David Rothkopf, coming to you today from Cambridge, Massachusetts, home of Harvard University. I walk around and I feel inferior constantly, but I found a way to counteract that. I'm going to have a conversation with Ed Luce, and I'm going to, I'm going to feel better and elevated uh, through every minute of it. I am sure Ed, of course, is from the Financial Times um, and is probably, I can tell from the background, in Washington, D.C. How are you, Ed? I'm very well. I'm not sure whether I'm feeling. I, I think I've got a complex British inferiority superiority complex going on here. But let's not let's not put me on the couch. Yeah, no, no. You, you're lucky. Um, I have a Jewish 100% inferiority complex. In 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 any event, um, let's talk about your column today. Uh, you you wrote about. Uh, uh, Kamala Harris, something you and I have talked about periodically, and what the Biden administration needs to do um, going forward um, with regard to tapping into the uh, the vice president's role. And so, maybe you could give a little bit of the thesis. Uh, yeah, thanks. It's um, you know th- there is a lot of um, passive aggression within the White House between the vice president's team and the president's team. Um, She was clearly picked for sound reasons, principally electoral reasons in 2020 um, to balance the ticket. Um, But there wasn't a very close relationship and there wasn't very deep trust invested in Kamala Harris by the Biden team. The degree to which that was or wasn't earned uh, you know, is something that everybody has a different view on. I don't want to go into that. The point is that he cannot drop her. He's not going to drop her. Um, and therefore, this passive aggression needs to be lost pretty quickly because she's going to be a major feature, much more than usual, of a vice president in next year's presidential election. She is much more than usual a heartbeat away from the presidency. And she needs to be exposed and built up a lot more than she has been hitherto. Um, the Biden campaign launch video did feature her, I believe, 16 times in three minutes. So if that is any guide, and I think it is, their plan is to build her up. But uh, just to give one example, 
the president has just, because of the debt ceiling crisis, cancelled the second leg of his um, forthcoming um, foreign trip to the G7 in uh, Hiroshima, which he's still going to, and is probably actually on the ground by the time most people listen to this. But he's cancelled going on to the Quad meeting in Australia and Papua New Guinea. This is just the kind of thing Kamala Harris should be doing in his stead, rather than cancelling it. Um, uh, interesting. Of course, with regard to the Quad meeting, he's already seeing um, uh, uh, the Prime Minister of Australia in in Japan. Um, and I think that was part of their rationale as well. However, interestingly, it does seem like, uh, as usual, the White House listens to you earlier when you talked about a, a new Washington consensus. They were on top of that instantly. Um, and uh, they uh, I literally 20 minutes ago, I got an invitation, as you probably did, to a briefing that the White House is going to conduct, I think, tomorrow on the debt ceiling, um, which is being hosted by Kamala Harris, which is interesting, unusual. It'll be Kamala Harris and the uh, new um, head of the National Economic Council, Lael Brainerd, um, the head of, uh, of White House Outreach. But uh, I, I've never seen her t- take the lead on something like this. And so it does sound like uh, they are making an initiative. In that way. Uh, that's good. I actually wasn't aware of that. Um, but that is, a, that is a very good thing. Um, uh, I suspect it means she won't be going to Papua New Guinea. <laughs> but... Uh, but I mean, the, the more of that, um, the better. Um, and there's people, you know, there are people who are going to not like Kamala Harris just as they don't like Joe Biden. That should not limit her exposure because there are plenty of people who like her. And I, I think she's got plenty of talent and, and that needs to be, the confidence behind it needs to be built up. Yeah, no, no. It, and it should be noted that uh, apropos of people liking her, uh, I saw poll today and you know they do the poll with biden and without biden and uh among democrats without biden she leads all democrats in terms of support um and you know as vice presidents go uh she's gone pretty far you know she's done meetings in southeast asia she's done meetings in latin america she's done a trip to africa that went well as you noted in your um uh column she's uh gone to Europe many times, gone to the Munich Security Conference, uh, met with Macron uh, several times, has had a good reaction from leaders, including some pretty cranky leaders uh, like um, uh, AMLO in Mexico, like Modi in India, where the the relationship was good. Of course, she's um, uh, half Indian, and so I think there's a special um, relationship there. And I think she's also had... um, uh, some resonance uh, in the past month or two on issues like uh, the abortion issue and the guns issue. As a former attorney general, she's had a lot of experience with that. So maybe maybe it's changing. Maybe maybe uh, you know, as you noted with the the White House announcement of the candidacy and the prominent role she played, maybe there's a recognition um, of the good common sense at the core of your column. Yeah, I, I think there probably is. I mean, there is no other place to go. I mean, let's be absolutely clear. There's there, there is no other strategy here. There's there's no possible way he can drop her. I, I very much doubt Biden's going to change his mind and drop out himself. 
which of course would open things up and then you know it would become dynamically uncertain again um although you you can't you can never rule that out with with a man of his age um but the but all things being equal they they have to double down on Kamala Harris and they've got to and they've got to show something that hasn't i don't think 100% yet been shown but maybe as you point out it, it is being made more manifest and that is 100% confidence in her abilities well you can you know people get to a certain age you can never be i'm not even 100% confident i'll make it to the end of this podcast but fortunately you're here and i know you'll carry on even if i, I, I slow forward um i'm a heartbeat away from <laughs> from from a monologue <laughs> yeah well we should um, everybody would look forward to that, I'm sure. So let's talk a little bit about the president's trip. He was uh, he's, he left today, Wednesday. Of course, it's Thursday in Asia, but he left today to go to Asia, to go to the G7 meeting. And of course, he's got two kind of front and center issues at the G7 meeting. There are others, but there, one is um, to uh, give everybody a Valium and tell them that the debt default is not going to happen. The U.S. is not going to blow up the world economy. We haven't lost our collective friggin' minds. Um, uh, of course, what happens here is going to affect that a lot. I wrote a column a couple days ago saying he should go uh, for just this reason. Um, do you think he should go? And do you think that's a, you know, that there is a constructive role for him to play in the context of the G7 because of this crisis? Yeah, I think the damage of not going, altogether not going, would, would be greater than whatever opportunity cost of him holding talks with McCarthy might be um, from, from, from going. And so uh, he's got to be there. And as you say, I mean, the cancellation of the quad thing doesn't matter hugely. He's got Modi coming. Um, Narendra Modi's visiting next month. Um, he's seeing Albanese, the Australian Prime Minister, and he's seeing um, uh, Kishido, the Japanese Prime Minister, there at the G7. So um, that those are the quad partners. Um, it's still very awkward. I, I don't think he can reassure them that this isn't going to happen um, because it's not fully in his power. Um, you know, unless he, unless I guess you define what being fully in his power, his ability to cave completely to Freedom Caucus um, hostage demands. Um, uh, and I guess, theoretically, that is fully within his power, but it would be an act of um, extraordinary wreckage, uh, uh, including of his own presidency, to do that. Um, so I don't think you can fully reassure them that um, a debt default isn't, isn't going to happen. Um, but the probability is that it's not going to happen, and he has to say that, and he has to as large extent as possible, keep America's business going um, on the global stage whilst this ridiculously gratuitous and reckless debt ceiling game of chicken is, is taking place. He has the, the great virtue of having been vice president in talking about vice presidents and, and you know, big decisions in 2011, the one who fixed the deal with Mitch McConnell um, that averted the debt ceiling and, of course, cost America a lot of growth because it involved uh, it involved fiscal decisions which were not sensible, but um, I guess it cost America less growth than having a debt default. And we just have to hope that that experience, you know, is going to, is going to work this time round. 
Yeah. No. I, by the way, I, I appreciate the way that you characterize this as kind of a hostage crisis. It is. This is not a normal negotiation. It is not two sided. Joe Biden did not put the the country's economy at risk. Uh, Kevin McCarthy did. Uh, having said that, uh, I, I know some people are critical of the president for having engaged in the game that McCarthy wants to play, um, and 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 negotiating, seemingly negotiating around this. Uh, to the point that earlier today, when somebody said to him, uh, "What do you think about work requirements?" which is one of the Republican require, you know, uh, issues on this, thinking that people who get social benefits need to work for them more, he said, "It depends on what the requirements are." Uh, he said that, by the way, moments after um, the uh, House Minority Leader, the leader of the Democrats in the House, Hakeem Jeffries, had said. Work requirements are off the table. Um, you know, my own personal biases, work requirements should be off the table. It's like, you know, if somebody should do work for Social Security, they did. They worked their whole life to pay in for Social Security. They're just getting their money back. And the same is, is true with the social contract as it pertains to Medicare. And um, the same goes, I, I think, as far as, you know, other people who are deeply in need uh, for these programs. Um, but... I'm I'm interested in your view. Do you think Biden has taken the bait too much? Has not countered the McCarthy um, uh, position with the kind of resoluteness? No, we're not negotiating um, uh, on the debt ceiling. I'll happy talk to you about the budget afterwards. Or do you think he had no choice? Well, I mean, he did take that stance for several months. Um, you know, he said. There must be a clean debt ceiling, which is exactly the correct stance. This is for for, for bills uh, already run up, half of them under the Trump administration, um, uh, and uh, we can discuss the budget separately. And um, McCarthy didn't budge. He passed this. Um, he passed this um, this this bill, and I guess then you you're faced with a choice. So if you think the other guy is not going to blink. Um, and your position is you're not going to blink, then we could end up in default. And that is a catastrophe. Um, it's a catastrophe that will reverberate to America's cost, not, not just financially in terms of credit rating downgrades um, and therefore the higher cost of borrowing and therefore, of course, budgetary, huge budgetary implications um, for this country, but also in terms of its... Um, uh, its credibility as a sovereign power, um, as a partner, and so on. So, uh, you know, I guess the problem is if if you if you think that the the that the Republicans are mad enough to do this, you as the responsible party have to at some point try and find a way to stop them from doing this. Um, not because there's any political gain from doing so, but because it's such a catastrophe for, for the nation that you're serving. So I don't know what the answer to that question is. I, I, I think it's very easy to throw brickbats and poison darts at, at Biden for, um, for essentially entering into negotiations on this with, with these hostage takers. But I don't know what, what the alternative is, frankly. Well, is an alternative, you know, the, the Republican majority is pretty slim. Is the alternative to go and find handful three, four, five Republican um, who would vote um, to uh, extend the debt ceiling uh, 
you know, presumably in exchange for something. Uh, they're not going to do it because it's just the right thing to do because, you know, of course, <laughs> this is not, you know, fantasy land. This is Washington. But, you know, people horse trade. That's the way Washington works. And, you know, you get a few big, you know, military contracts in somebody's district or something, and maybe they vote your way. Isn't, isn't, is, is that another possibility that you just try to peel off some Republicans? Yeah, in exchange for pushing the debt ceiling back to 2025. Yeah. Uh, you know, not, not early 2024, as some of the um, possible Republican waverers have suggested. That would serve McCarthy, not, uh, not the nation or Biden. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, 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 think, I think they're looking, trying to explore um, um, those avenues. Uh, the sort of degree of intimidation and threat that's around in the Republican Party is quite high. It's quite acute for anybody deemed to be, you know, they've all watched Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger. Uh, they've all seen what happens to apostate, apostates. Um, so I imagine the price to sort of buy, essentially what you're saying is change party because their party will, will, will repulse them. They will be doxxed. They will be QAnoned. Um, so I, I think this is a lot more difficult than um, it would be in ordinary, I say ordinary circumstances, this is an extraordinary circumstance, but then in your run-of-the-mill debt ceiling, you know, um, a gratuitous game of chicken. Yeah, but the other dimension of this, which just, you know, is deeply infuriating, is that this is a hostage-taking, and so it's not really a negotiation. And so when Kevin McCarthy says there will be no tax cuts, then there aren't going to be tax, I mean, tax increases. There will, there aren't going to be tax increases as part of this thing. And of course, if you really want to deal with the fiscal problem, you know, revenue is probably the better way to go than cutting some of these programs, particularly when you think about the fact that what McCarthy, you know, began as his going in position was a 22% total cut on the budget. But of course, you know, if you take defense out of the budget, you know, uh, the, the discretionary budget, um, that essentially leaves you with the other half. And the other half means that to get a 22% cut, you essentially have to cut every single other department in the government in half. Yeah. Commerce, education, veterans, health, all this other stuff. It's insane. It's not possible. It wouldn't work. You can't get there from here on cuts alone. You've got to do a revenue side. But the GOP is absolutely opposed to that. Um, uh, and, you know, it doesn't look like we're going to make any ground on it now. Yeah, I believe the, the action that you're right, it's half. It's 47% cuts by 2033, um, uh, um, building up over the next decade, a sort of a, a slow deliberately instituted strangulation of the federal gov government's ability to do anything other than fight wars. Um, so, yeah, it, it's nuts on economic grounds. Um, it's unforgivable on social grounds in terms of who, who is getting it here, who would be getting it um, in, in, the, you know, in the solar plexus um, would be those least able to, to, to bear the cost. Um, but I think they're serious. Um, and, um, you know, so if Biden finds a way of, you know, doing some tawdry things 
um, you know, such as um, having more work requirements for TANF or SNAP, um, and manages to, um, you know, present as a concession stuff that actually should happen anyway, such as the Permitting Act, which just speed up all infrastructure, you know, and we'll, you know, the, the progressive wing of the Democratic Party would have to swallow the fact that um, it would involve a natural gas pipeline from West Virginia. Um, but it would accelerate clean energy rollout. It would accelerate infrastructure rollout. It would preserve the IRA. Um, then he's going to get a lot of criticism for doing this, but it would be a perfectly reasonable deal to agree to um, in these circumstances. That said, I quite share your view, like give $10 million to each district of five Republicans um, you know, and make sure they get elected as independents or Democrats, whatever it, whatever it takes, is infinitely preferable than any deal with this um, surpassing recklessness and callousness that we have from McCarthy's party. Yeah, no, no. And, you know, we, of course, it's Trump's party. And Trump, during his CNN uh, uh, town hall, said, oh, well, you know, these, these debt defaults, this is just psychological uh, you know, it could have an effect for a day. It could have an effect for a week. It's not a big deal, which is in, insane, typically reckless for him. But let's look at another dimension of it. And by the way, I do agree with you just parenthetically that, you know, there's some things Biden can do that are distasteful, um, but okay, part of it's permitting. There's there's some COVID funds out there that haven't been used. They could claw those back. There are things like that that don't go against the sort of fundamental social contract we've struck with most of the people in the United States. Um, but of course, there's another dimension of this. It's the reason that Biden's getting on the plane and going to Japan and meeting with the G7. And that is that were we to default, and even as we flirt with default, it strengthens our rivals and our enemies in the world. There are people out there in Russia, in China, and elsewhere that don't want the dollar to be the, you know, the uh, um, uh, currency hegemon that it is. There are people in those countries that seize upon every moment of weakness to say the United States is is uh, is an unreliable leader. Um, I, I, I should add that it's compounded. I saw a story this morning that, you know, the Germans have started reaching out to the Trump campaign, you know, so that if Trump becomes the president again, they're not blindsided by the relationship. Um, of course, it would be catastrophic for the Ukrainians. Um, uh, and I will just permit myself one momentary um it's not an op-ed, really. It's just a kind of a clarification. But, you know, Trump said during the uh, the town hall meeting that if he were the president of the United States, he'd end the war in 24 hours. And he was not challenged in the way that I think he should have been challenged, which is to say, but Mr. President, the war started in 2014. It raged every single day you were in office. You did nothing to stop the war for four years, except to try to blackmail Ukraine by withholding military aid to Ukraine. So this is just untrue on its face. 
But of course, in Ukraine, the prospect of Trump winning, the prospect of the U.S. weakening, the prospect of a U.S. default is existential. So, I mean, there is a big international component to this debate. There's a massive international component to this debate. I mean, as regards the dollar's reserve status, this could be this could be the straw that broke the camel's back. There are all kinds of pressures that have been building up, one of which is, of course, the demand of America's detractors led by China. But there are plenty there, you know, the, the, the Brazilians to some degree, the Russians obviously, wanting to have an alternative um, reserve currency, wanting to supplant King Dollar. Um, the um, sanctions, the use of sanctions, um, the, the power of the dollar to impose sanctions on anybody who uses the dollar for, for, for trade or, or financial transactions has built up um, a quite a be- up quite a sort of um, body of resentment around the world, even amongst allies. Um, but the dollar can withstand all of this um, because it's liquid, it's a li- deep, liquid, um, convertible, um, backed up by an independent legal system, none of which applies to the remnant B, the only really viable alternative. Um, uh, a default on America's debt obligations could change the game entirely. Um, so I would see that um, as the financial equivalent of the political act of Trump being re-elected. I mean, a, a deep, profound shock that, that changes how people perceive America and changes America's power in the world overnight. Um, so, uh, yeah, Trump, I mean, it, who, who better than Trump to say it wouldn't matter? Well, but I th- you bring up a really good point. Um, um, and somebody should write a column on this. And if you don't, I'll wait a week as this is the way I usually do my columns, and see if you wrote about it. And if you didn't, then I'll give it a try. But, you know, the, this whether we have a default or not, every single time something like this happens, the arguments for the people who say, no, the dollar can't play the role it did any longer, get stronger. And, you know, they're going to say at the end of this, well, it could happen again in 2025 or whenever this gets punted out to, and it could happen if Trump becomes the president of the United States. And essentially, you know, um, I, I wrote a column the other day that said the Republicans were the fuck you party. Um, but this is, you know, Kevin McCarthy saying, fuck the dollar. You know, f- you know, I don't care. Who needs a dollar? Um, and, and it's insane. It's irresponsible. Um, but the damage is done whether there's a last minute deal or not. Obviously, the damage would be worse if there wasn't. But some damage is done. Yeah, because each time what's what's priced into the markets, the default swap, the, the credit default swap hedge against it happening, um, you know, gets more probable. So each time the market, it just becomes, it inches up, it becomes a more normal possibility, a black swan event that you can expect to happen. Um, and um, so a lot of the damage has already been done, even if this is averted. Um, uh, I still think it probably will be averted and there will be other costs. They, they won't be a catastrophic costs, costs that we've discussed. Um, and one of which is that it raises the likelihood they will use this again. Yeah, well, it works. You know, and in fact, I, I think we, we all need to be a little bit um, you know, honest about this. Because the Democrats control the Senate, 
it's only brinksmanships like this that gives the house any leverage. Uh, they don't they don't have the ability to force anything through unless they hold a gun to the head of their own country, which is it, which is what they're doing. Um, by the way, you know, you just said it probably won't happen. I noted that earlier this morning, the day we're recording this, which is Wednesday, um, Jamie Dimon of J.P. Morgan came out of a meeting on the Hill and said, you know, I feel it probably will not happen. And, you know, everybody in the market reads the probably a lot louder than the will not happen, right? They, they, it's uncertain. He's not, you know, and it, it's... it. Frankly, I don't know that it's highly constructive for him to come out and say it probably will not happen. Um, but nonetheless, you know, and you know, I I I I think the message is we're gonna have jittery markets until a deal is done, and then afterwards there will be residual jitteriness. Yeah, there will be. Um uh Jamie Dimon is head of the largest bank in America, you know, and he's probably, I think, the most senior experienced banker around. Um, you know, this kind of thing is turning him a natural Republican into a Democrat. I mean, it's quite clear people like him are now effectively Democrats. Uh, extraordinary picture. Um, fuck the dollar. Um, fuck business, a term, by the way, that Boris Johnson used when a business started raising objections to the insanity of Brexit and of Brexit 2.0 when he started threatening the whole Irish peace deal, um, is a position on the right now, um, you know, in many parts of the Western world. Um, and the Republican Party is pretty close to a sort of fuck business, it, uh, with the exception of privately held billion, billion, multi-billionaires who are funding us. You know, that's the non-corporate, the non-listed, the non-publicly held businesses, the and the Peter Thiels, the national conservatives, the people who used to call themselves libertarian, but you scratch a libertarian so often you find a fascist. Um, that's that's what it's turning into. And you know, I mean, they are definitely, you know, they're they're the pilot in the plane right now who's going. We're going where I want to go. Or I'm flying the plane into a mountain, yeah. And and it's 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 scary as hell. In the last couple of minutes that we've got, um, th- of course, the other point of the G7 meeting is um, uh, was intended to sort of be a counterpoint to China to say, here we are, we're together, you know, um, uh, 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 going to. A quad meeting afterwards was an important part of that, and I, th- I don't think we should underestimate the damage not doing that meeting will do, uh, and that's on McCarthy. It's not on Biden. But um, what do you think the the other consequences of not go- or of go- of going in this context will be? Uh, it's more sort of talking points for China. You know, China is being very busy. It, it, its neighbors are scared of it, um, but they're also pretty frustrated at, um, you know, the lack of American economic action in the region. And China is, you know, busy joining all kinds of, well, creating its own trade groups, but trying to join ones that America created and then left. Um, and it is a massively more important part of their pocketbook um, and their trade balance 
than America is nowadays for every, for every country in Asia, including our allies, Australia, et cetera. Um, and that, that's growing. That's continuing to grow. You know, rumors of China's sort of economic demise were very premature. It's roaring back this year. Um, clearly, Xi made some massive errors on COVID. Um, but they are sort of, you know, correcting them as if they were never made. You know, they're sort of taking diametrically opposite positions. And it's becoming a, you know, um, an even more important counterpart to every economy in Asia than it, than it, that even it has been before. So we've got to sort of look at it in that context. China is not going away. Um, and it's gonna, it's gonna see, um, opportunities like this as PR ones to try and bolster the, the case that we're the responsible um, partner, not America. Yeah, I'd like to end on a point. Um, I mentioned earlier your enormous influence as a columnist, uh, quite apart from your being one heartbeat away from this monologue here, which apparently I survived the whole podcast. But, um, th- you know, you have written... Fareed Zakaria wrote, Tom Friedman wrote, Max Boot wrote, I wrote. Yes. That we needed to fix what our relationship was with China. I I, I have to say, and I had a meeting with a very high-level government official uh, a breakfast on Friday. I get the strong impression that whether it's because we wrote it or not, and probably wasn't, but, you know, let's leave that open, um, that, that there's a switch going on. And it, you know, we saw it in Janet Yellen's speech. We saw it in uh, the speech by Jake Sullivan. Um, we've seen it a lot, interestingly, in somebody many people haven't heard from recently, and that's Ambassador Nick Burns, our ambassador in China, mm-hmm. uh, who said we're ready to talk, and who has been out actively meeting with Chinese leaders, saying, "Let's do this. Let's do this other thing." He's been he's been much more engaged, um, and and so I sense. It's not a reversal, but there has been a modulation in our tone towards China. I think that's very true. And I think, you know, Jake Sullivan's meetings with with Wang Yi um, in um, Vienna, um, you know, long meetings um, were a, a very sort of good faith attempt to try and get this, this back on, this relationship at least back into a sort of routine talking relationship. And I hope one of the fruits of these kinds of efforts, which are not, as you imply, well, as you say, which are not the kind of efforts that Tom Cotton or Josh Hawley or Mike Gallagher or even um, Congressman Krishnamurti, the Democratic ranking member on the China House Committee, are calling for. You know, they they are the hawkish um, camp. This does differentiate from those, and I very much hope this will result in a Blinken or Yellen visit to China. Um, and then, of course, um, a meeting between between Biden and Xi. The last one did go reasonably well in Bali, got blown off course by this balloon. Um, but we can't allow balloons or hawks or other funny things in the sky um, to disrupt this critically important relationship. I have to just got to mention one bugbear I've got. Um, Britain's um, former, very briefly, um, brief prime minister, Liz Truss, the one who was, you know, outlasted by a lettuce um, and who who was prime minister for four Scaramucci's, um, 44 days. 
um, is in Taiwan this week giving a speech that says, uh, and I mention this because she speaks for a lot of, I mean, she's channeling, she doesn't speak for them, but she's channeling um, a lot of these hawks, um, that says, uh, if China doesn't back down on Taiwan, we should stop cooperation on every single issue, um, climate, um, pandemics, we should stop cooperation and on everything unless China agrees to our idea of freedom. Um, this is absolutely nuts. Um, now, I mean, she's an imbecile, but there are people who should know better who are essentially holding the same position. No question. They should definitely send the lettuce to Taiwan to make a counterargument, uh, which would undoubtedly be more compelling. But I will... Um, I'll make a prediction here based on the conversations I've had and, and, and following what you say. I think Blinken will go fairly soon. I think there will be a meeting between Biden and Xi um, uh, in the not too distant future. And what's more, I sense from the, 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 the people I talked to in the Biden administration, a genuine openness to China playing some role uh, in ultimately talks that may involve a Ukraine settlement. Uh, and that they're kind of expecting that if there is a you know one plus one structure to this thing, that we might be the wingman for the Ukrainians and that the Chinese might be the wing person, even though they're the senior partner for the Russians. Uh, so when China first, Xi Jinping first put out his 10-point plan, the State Department shot it down. Obviously, that 10-point plan was skewed towards Russia's view of this war. Um, and I think that was wrong to shoot it down. What they should have said is we disagree with the premise uh, of, of um, how these talks would be held, but we welcome any effort to bring this war to an end from China or any other party. I think we've now moved to that position which is exactly the correct position. Again, not the one the Hawks would recommend, but it's exactly the pragmatic one the Biden administration should be pursuing. They should, and, and likewise, they applauded. Jake Sullivan correctly applauded China's brokerage of that deal with Iran and sat between Iran and Saudi Arabia, said we couldn't have done it, but we're glad you did. Give them skin in the game and you will see that it will affect their behavior. Absolutely right. Uh, well, you're absolutely right about almost everything, Ed, and that's why it's so pleasant to uh, talk to you um, here. And it's nice to have had this kind of chance to really go into depth on a number of these issues. Uh, needless to say, uh, in, in, in the future weeks, we will have our colleagues back, some of whom are traveling to far places on the globe. Um, uh, but uh, And that will be a good thing, too, but I've enjoyed this. Uh, for the rest of you who are listening, we've got great podcasts coming in the remainder of this week. We're going to look at tomorrow the politics uh, uh, in in Washington with E.J. Dion and Jen Rubin of the Washington Post. We've got a special with our friend Wajahat Ali coming on uh, Friday. We've got all our other usual podcasts in our expanded lineup, including I want to underscore our newest podcast, the one that happens on every Monday, our show looking at intelligence 
issues. We call it The Spy Show with Mark Polymeropoulos and I talking to senior people in the Intel community. Uh, it's part of our expanded offering, and I hope you'll be listening to that as well as all these other things. And this, the flagship podcast of the DSR Network, Deep State Radio, every single week. Uh, if you want to support it, go become a member. Go to the DSRnetwork.com, click on membership. It's $5 a month. We're offering more and more. In fact, I would venture to say, I don't want to stick my neck out, but I think we probably offer the most comprehensive group of podcasts on international affairs, national security, and and serious public policy issues you can find anywhere. Uh, Your support has made us among the leading podcasts in that regard. We hope you will continue to support us. For now, thanks for doing all you're doing. And Ed, thank you for being with us today. Uh, And we'll be back with you all again soon. Bye-bye.